Good morning. We've been slowly, meticulously working our way through this beautiful and glorious book of Hebrews. The pastor, author behind the book of Hebrews has been writing and emphasizing one main point. And if you've been here, Lord willing, you've seen that point, and it's this, that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than Moses. He's better, and in him, the covenant in him is better than the old covenant. Everything about Jesus, who he is and what he's done, is better. And the reason why that's so important is because the author's audience has been tempted to give up on Jesus. They've been prone to wander, leave the God they love. For many of them, having faith and remaining faithful to Jesus Christ, well, it's proving to be somewhat of a costly endeavor. There are crosses to bear and persecutions to endure. And so they're tempted to return to the Judaism that they knew so well growing up. Because at least there they wouldn't be persecuted. So we've come to the point in the book of Hebrews where the author is wanting to really stir them up to faithful endurance. You remember that he began the whole section back in chapter 10, verse 39, by saying, we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. What he's doing here in this beautiful chapter of chapter 11 is, well, he's reaching back and he's showing them, he's showing us not only what true faith looks like, but he's doing so by using faithful examples from throughout the Old Testament. And here's why that's so brilliant. Hear this out. If the author's audience is tempted to leave Christ and go back to Judaism, What he's going to do here is use heroes from Judaism's past and show them, show us, how even they looked forward with faith to Jesus Christ. In other words, he's saying, you want to go back to Abraham and to Moses and to the prophets? Well, let me tell you about Abel and Noah and Abraham and Moses and the prophets. Their faith was a faith that pre persevered by looking forward to the Messiah. The Christ I've been calling you to, not to give up on and and to put your faith in for the last 10 chapters, well, he's the same Messiah they looked forward to by faith. In fact, this was exactly what Jesus himself told the Pharisees when he rebuked them in John chapter 8 for failing to believe, or even more precisely, for their misplaced faith. He said to them in John chapter 8, verse 56, that your father and Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. In other words, there was was this very real and tangible joy and excitement in Abraham that came out of his faith as he looked forward to Jesus. (coughs) This morning, we're going to look at Abraham's faith here in Hebrews 11. He is perhaps the brightest model of faith in this list. He indeed takes up the most space. In fact, the next three weeks will all be focused on Abraham as we look at Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 22. But this morning, we're only going to begin by examining verses 8 through 11. So if you have your Bibles, please open them up to Hebrews chapter 11. 
can read along with me there in verses 8 through 11. Hebrews chapter 11, and then the smaller numbers, verses 8 through 11. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. This is God's holy and inerrant word. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you this morning for this time that you have gathered us. It's time where we can come before your living and active word. And Lord, we pray that your word would have its due effect upon our lives piercing between bone and marrow into the depths of our heart, indeed by your Spirit using it to convict us of sin, allowing us to repent, the Lord even more so encouraging us in faith, turning us to Christ, allowing us to persevere as we continue to follow after and cling to him as our great high priest, our Savior, our Lord and King. Lord, we pray that you would encourage us now and do so not only for our good and sanctification, but for your glory. Amen. For many Christians these days, faith is a kind of one-time event. One and done. And then starts, you know, the Christian life. Sadly, many have bought into the very modern idea that faith is nothing more than accepting Jesus into your heart. And once you've done that, you know, check, well, then the rest is just kind of an add-on. And for those of you who have perhaps believed that kind of theology, Hebrews 10.39, well, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. The idea that true faith is this persevering faith, that biblical faith is a, a daily endeavor of faithfulness. Well, that kind of thinking might sound foreign and strange, but it shouldn't because it's biblical. The Bible, and perhaps nowhere else more than here in the book of Hebrews, presents real faith as an enduring process that does not give up or shrink back. And here in our text this morning, I think we see this kind of enduring faith fleshed out. The author takes Abraham, and I think he kind of unpacks for us the ingredients of true, enduring, saving faith. As I work through this text, I see in this passage... 11 elements, 11 ingredients to an enduring and saving faith. And and so that will be our outline for this morning. 11 points, and my wife encouraged me to lower the number. But there they are, and I cannot do anything else but preach them. 11 points to what true saving faith is. Are you ready? Point one. Real faith is unhesitating. Real faith is unhesitating. And you see that immediately in verse 8 where it says that by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called out to a place that he was to receive 
as an inheritance. You could translate that as, while he was being called, Abraham obeyed. His faith was unhesitating to God's call. As Abraham was being called, he obeyed. And in the midst of God's calling, Abraham obeyed with this sense of immediacy. He didn't stop to consider. There's no calculating or weighing of options. God called him, and Abraham said, yes, immediately, I'm yours. I will go. I don't know what that actually looked like for him in the land of Ur, but I could imagine that many of his family members approached him as he began packing his things and preparing for his journey, and they asked him, Abraham, where are you going? I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? No one just decides on a whim to up and leave all that is familiar and go with no real direction or clarity on where it is you're going. And all Abraham could say was, I don't know where I'm going, but I do know that the living God has called me to go and I cannot refuse him. I must go and I've got to go now. While he was called to go out to a place, Abraham obeyed. His faith was unhesitating. Secondly, Abraham's faith was obedient. When he was called, Abraham actually obeyed. That's what verse 8 is telling us. Many people have fallen for the lie that real faith is simply believing and no more, but not so. Faith and obedience are are two sides of one coin. As A.W. Pink so rightly put it, faith and obedience can never be severed. Just as the sun is with light or fire and heat, so too is obedience the daughter of faith. I mean, it's significant, isn't it, that Paul in Romans 4 upholds Abraham as the model of justification by faith alone? And yet James also uses Abraham as a model. The model that real faith is the faith that is obedient, the faith that works. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, asks James. Can that faith save him? Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Some will say that faith is all you need. You have faith in God, that's great. Even the demons believe and shudder. And so just as James upholds Abraham as the model for obedient faith, so does the author of Hebrews here in chapter 11. But he also upholds Sarah, doesn't he? Why does he add Sarah here in a section that seems to be all about Abraham, the father of the faithful? Well, because her faithfulness is connected with him, isn't it? Abraham came home one day after a long 10-hour shift of shepherding sheep, and even before he gives his wife a kiss on the cheek, he says, Sarah, we need to pack up and we need to go. We're leaving her first thing tomorrow morning. Now, wives, what would your first response be if your husband came home and said, Honey, we've got to go. God is calling us to go. He's called me to go, and we've got to leave this week. What would your first question be? Perhaps you'd ask him, Where are you going? And perhaps he'd answer you just as the end of verse 8 answers. We need to go out not knowing where we're really headed. All that I know is that God will get us there. Would your first answer be, I'm not going anywhere until you tell me where we're going. I'm not leaving our friends and our family, the grandparents down the street who can watch our kids, the comfort and support system that we have here. 
You better call up one of the elders and set up a counseling session with them because we're not just leaving. Or would you say, when I married you, you became not only my husband, but my head, my leader. And as God has called you, so then he has called me. We're one flesh, and where you go, I too will go. I'll start packing our bags. Do you know why Sarah is held up as the model for faithful Christian wives in the New Testament? Because of her obedience to God, seen in her obedience to Abraham. The Apostle Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3 that wives are to be subject to their own husbands so that even if some husbands do not obey God's word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see their respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, says Peter, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. And then Peter says this in verse 5, that this is how the holy and godly women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed her husband Abraham, calling him Lord. And you, Christian wives, are her children, if you do likewise doing good and not fearing anything that is frightening. Now, I understand how distasteful that verse is to so many of us today, but there it is, right there in God's perfect and inspired word. The Apostle Paul actually makes the same point even a little bit more explicitly, doesn't he? In Ephesians 5, verse 24, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And so here... Sarah's faith is upheld as we see her submit to her husband. Here we see Sarah's obedient faith. One quick qualification. Many of us need to know and understand that that nothing said here of what I've just laid out should apply to a woman who is married to a genuine tyrant. That exists. The model for godly wives who live under genuine tyrants and bullies is, is more Abigail in how she dealt with Nabal in 1 Samuel 25. And we know that there are marriages where their husbands are, are thugs and bullies rather than servants and loving shepherds, and that in those situations, it is good for wives to bring things to a head. And when that happens, and it sadly happens all too often, I, we, the Bible, are firmly in the corner of the wife who is the victim. In those situations, wives should be an Abigail more than a Sarah. And if the situation is violent, get out, get away, and find safety. That needs to be made clear. But for those wives who do not live under the terror of a tyrant, well, the faith of Sarah is certainly our model here. The fantastic thing is that was that remarkable way in which they're both mutually enduring in their faithfulness to God's promises, right? Here they are, now out in this unknown land, living in tents. Take that in, wives. You followed your husband in obedient faith, and what has it gotten you? A few decades of living in a tent that you bought on a whim from Walmart. Have you ever gone camping and then like three nights in, you're way over it? You know, it's just not fun anymore. You're ready to go home. Well, there's Sarah and Abraham doing that for years. Not giving up, but remaining obedient to God's call. 
And especially when it came to that amazing promise which God had given to Abraham years and years before, that through Abraham would come children, descendants as many as the stars in the sky. And then one day God shows up and says, yes, that time has arrived. This time next year, Sarah's going to have a baby boy. And Genesis tells us that Sarah laughed in the tent when she heard that. You can understand a little bit, right? She's 90, he's 99. The passage tells us Abraham was as good as dead. So yeah, she, she laughed. But you know, she still had faith. And get this, it was an obedient faith. How do we know it was obedient faith? How do we know her faith was evidenced by works? Well, because having a baby takes some work. Sarah, at 90 years old, must have perhaps turned to her husband one Canaan summer night's eve and said, Abe, do you want to see if this promise is true? Should we, you know, try and make a baby? And isn't that amazing, faith and obedience? Verse 11 tells us, even when she was past the age to conceive, she considered him who was faithful. There was true faith behind the obedience. Indeed, true faith is obedient. Point three, real faith is trusting. Again, look at verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called. As we read back in Genesis 12 earlier this morning, the Lord called Abraham And in that call, gave him a promise. And we see that in verse 9 too, right? By faith, he went to live in the land of promise. That word promise shows up twice more, again in verse 9 and once in verse 11. The point, though, is the person who stands behind the promise. And, And you see that in verse 11, where Sarah considered God. He who gave the promise. She considered him as faithful. Faith is trusting because it rests upon the faithfulness and goodness and and trustworthiness of God. Abraham trusted God, and he could pick up and leave and go to a place he had no idea about because he trusted that God was a trustworthy God. In other words, his faith wasn't a kind of blind guess in the dark, nor was it, as is so common described today, a trusting in your heart or what you feel. Now, his faith was a trusting faith because he trusted in God who called him. Proverbs 28, 26 makes it so clear that whoever trusts in his own heart is a fool. Compare that with Psalm 119, verse 68, which reminds us that God is good because he does good. Or how about 1 Thessalonians 5, 24, where Paul reminds us that God who calls us is faithful because and he will accomplish all his ways. If you have some time this afternoon, and this would be a great use of resting and worshiping on the Lord's Day, you should read Psalm 89, which is 51 verses committed to exalting and and meditating on the faithfulness of God. Is your faith lacking in trust? Read and pray through Psalm 89 and draw near to the most trustworthy being in all existence. There's a connection, isn't there, between what we hear from God and our level of dependence upon him, our ability to trust in him. Abraham heard from God, and as you read throughout Genesis, he continued to hear from God. And his times of being with God and meditating upon what God said produced with him a real trust, a faith, a faith that could trust in his promises, because he trusted the God who promised. 
And do we hear from God today? Well, not like Abraham did, no. We have something even better, says the Apostle Peter. His inerrant, inspired, sufficient, and inscripturated word. How do you come to trust God? Oh, friends, you can't do it with this line closed on a shelf somewhere in your house. Hear from God as you read his living and active word, and you'll find your heart wooed into a trusting faith. God is speaking, and faith comes from hearing the word that he's given us. Point four, faith is missional. Faith is missional. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean faith is willing to go to places or to go to people who do not know about God and live and act and speak before them as a witness to God. Real faith is a faith that flows out of and acts out of a missional heart. We see that twice in verses 8 and 9. See how the text says he went out, verse 8? And he went out not knowing where he was going. Verse 9, by faith he went to live in the land of promise. Back in Genesis 12, we actually see Abraham do this very thing. Not only does he go to this unknown land, but the text tells us a number of times, and, and Kevin read this for us this morning, that Abraham built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord, and he did that everywhere he went. This act of building an altar and calling on the name of the Lord wasn't like this private thing where he kept his faith to himself. It was this public and visual and and oftentimes very communal act. It was Abraham evangelizing and living as a bright and bold witness for God in a very godless place. And of course, we want to ask ourselves, what does that look like for us today? What might it look like for us in obedient faith to go out and live with missional faith. Have you considered moving to Korea and praying for those in North Korea as you inch closer and closer to the DMZ, trying to get Bibles into the hands of those who do not yet know Christ? Have you considered what being missional here looks like? Actively, by faith, trusting in God to live a life that witnesses to God around friends and and neighbors and even family members that are opposed to Christ and the gospel. Real faith is a missional faith. Point five, true faith is living in the now and the not yet. True faith is living in the now and not yet. We live in a day and age where so many people believe that faith should gain for us everything promised now. So many people have this over-realized eschatology, perhaps no more so than the ugliness of the prosperity gospel. But true faith is trusting in God and enduring in faithfulness as we enjoy the blessings of God both now and not yet. For Abraham, this is seen in verse 9, where we see that he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob. The promise was that he would have a land, but that promise was throughout his life not yet realized. In fact, we'll look at that even more so next week in verse 13, where it says that Abraham died in faith, not yet receiving the things promised. He lived now as a foreigner, a sojourner, an exile, and the extent to which God's promise was fulfilled was that he was in the land, but not yet of the land, only living there, as it were, in tents, looking forward, says verse 10, to something more, something better, 
And that's the nature of our faith. It's faith because it's holding on to promises not yet realized. If the promise had been fully materialized, there would have been no need for faith, only pure enjoyment of the gift and the blessing. But the point, right, is that God is pleased with our faith. Remember verse 6 of Hebrews 11? Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And so God has consigned us in his wisdom to this, this time of waiting. And in that time, we wait, and we wait by faith, believing in God now and and looking forward to what is not yet. Faith is living in the now and not yet. That leads us to point number six. Faith is forward-looking. Or you could say it this way, faith is hopeful. It is a hopeful forward-looking. You see that in verse 10? How could Abraham be sustained in enduring faithfulness as he lived as a sojourner in tents. Well, verse 10 tells us he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And there's so much here. We're going to have to come back and unpack some of what's going on here even next week. But briefly, notice that even while Abraham was living in the land of promise, subsisting, as it were, in tents, he was still looking forward to something better, a better city whose foundations were built by God. What's going on here? Well, marvelously, by faith, Abraham understood that that God's inheritance was infinitely more than what he could immediately see around him. He was looking forward to what verse 16 goes on to say, and you can See him bring this same city up again there in verse 16. He was looking forward to a city that he actually calls a heavenly city, a better country. A little bit later in chapter 12 and verse 22, he calls it the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Or even in chapter 13, verse 14, speaking now to us as believers, he refers to that same city again, calling it the city that is to come. That's profound. We'll come back to this, but what the author of Hebrews is telling us is that what Abraham looked forward to is the same thing that we're looking forward to. John MacArthur, on this very passage, notes that Abraham was looking forward, quote, to the heavenly dwelling of all the saved. There was not only a land of which he was promised, but beyond that there was a city, a heavenly Jerusalem, set in its foundations by God. And then MacArthur, turning to Ezekiel 48, 45, shows that the name Ezekiel gives to the city, and this is great. The name of the city is the Lord is there. Here, Abraham's faith is a faith that is forward-looking, not impeded by sight. He's not blinded by the riches of the world, or in his case, and for many of us, he's not depressed by the lack of comfort and riches in this world. Now, in Genesis, this is seen, right, in Abraham's contrast with Lot. Remember Lot? Lot, who trusted in only what he could see, And he chose the better land, but spiritually speaking, it cost him dearly. Lot didn't live by faith in God's promises, but rather sought out earthly cities. The city of Sodom and Gomorrah, moving ever closer and finally living in and finding himself spiritually entrenched in the city of Sodom. So that he dies in a cave, the Old Testament equivalent to a burial ground, spiritually signifying what is happening to his soul. And that's so with Abraham. By faith, he looked forward to a better city, the new Jerusalem to come. Point eight, 
Point eight is that Abraham's faith was a God-centered and God-grounded faith. Abraham could look forward to that city because he knew that its builder was God himself. It was an eternal and heavenly city because God was behind it. Thus, his faith centered really upon God. And this was true of Sarah as well, wasn't it? It was a God-centered faith, as verse 11 tells us, because she considered God. Her faith was centered upon and grounded in the God who was faithful. And this is important to note, because all too often we have this kind of vague idea that faith is just a, a feeling of good vibes. I don't know what vibes are, but, but we think that. And, and faith isn't this, this, right, this, this, this kind of emotion that gets us through a tough day. Just have faith. Just have it. Real faith, though, biblical faith, is only existent when it's looking to, grounded in, and focused on someone more faithful, focused on God. Faith gets you out of yourself, out of your own heart and mind. A God-centered faith says this, I feel like giving up. I feel depressed. I feel like I want to give in to the constant waves of temptation that are pouring over me day after day. But I know my feelings aren't faithful. And I know that my heart is not to be trusted. It's not a solid rock on which I can stand. But God is. And so I'll trust and put my faith in God. I'll look to and rely on him. That is a God-centered faith. Point number nine is that this kind of faith is an empowering faith. You see that again in verse 11. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive. We've already noted what this looked like in Sarah's life, so this shouldn't be surprising to us. But but that power was not this, again, mystical electric current that enabled her to to kind of miraculously have a baby. She was empowered to first obey, and then, through the coming together of one man and one woman, she passed the age of being able to conceive, and he as good as dead, There in that most impossible of situations, Sarah was empowered to lean over to Abraham and perhaps whisper with wifely affection, you know, with man, this is impossible. With with God, all things are possible. So true faith is an empowering faith. Point number 10 is that true enduring faith is death-defeating. It's death-defeating. Look there in verse 12. We'll look at this in a lot more detail in two weeks where this is unpacked for us in verses 17 through 22. But, but notice just briefly the language the author uses here. I don't think it's without purpose. He says that Abraham, this, this one man, and him as good as dead, was born to him descendants as many as the stars of heaven and in, as innumerable as the grains of sand by the sea. Here Abraham's faith, and for that matter Sarah's faith, overcame what the author is labeling as good as dead. In the face of death, that hopeless darkness that is inescapable and unending, in the face of death, Abraham's faith endured, and out of that came life, life innumerable. I think the author uses the language he does here to bring to our minds the even greater truth of Christ. Notice how he says, from one man, and him as good as dead, We're born descendants. I think the author, what he's doing here is using Abraham and through this situation, pointing us to Christ, the one man who through death brought about life. Isn't that what chapter 11 is really leading us up to? We're at the beginning of chapter 12. We're actually called to ultimately look to Jesus, 
the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured death on the cross, and out of that event came life to us. Abraham here is is typifying our Lord, whereby placing our faith in him, we are now born again as sons, sons of Abraham, as was read earlier in Galatians, indeed sons of God. Hebrews has already brought this out, but it's worth noting again, just briefly, and that's this. Death awaits us all, doesn't it? It's the great equalizer. In fact, Hebrews 9 has already warned us that that it is appointed for all men to die but once, and after that comes judgment. Friends, if you're here this morning as someone who has not come to Jesus Christ in faith, trusting in him alone for your salvation, and obediently following after him in all your life, well, friends, God's word is clear. Death and judgment do await. But if you turn to Jesus Christ, the author of life himself who offered himself over to death and underneath the judgment of the Father to be and bear the sins of many. Well, friends, in him, death is really defeated. Life, eternal life is secured. If you've not put your faith in Jesus Christ, do so now. You don't know the day nor the hour when your appointed death will come. Friends, repent now and believe. That leads us to our last point. True enduring faith is really a Christ-clinging faith. It's unhesitating and obedient. It's trusting and missional. It lives in the now and not yet. It's forward-looking, God-centered, empowering, and death-defeating. But ultimately, true faith, and most essentially, true faith is Christ-clinging faith. It clings to our Lord. Remember that the main issue in the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is superior. He is better, better than Moses, better than the old covenant. And here he's he's better than even Abraham. How do we know that? Well, because even Abraham's faith looked forward to Jesus. Abraham's faith was a Christ-clinging, Messiah-focused faith. We already noted how Jesus himself said that Abraham rejoiced and looked forward to seeing Christ. Kevin, likewise, Uh, read for us earlier how the gospel itself was given to Abraham. Did you catch that in Galatians 3, verses 7 and 8? Quote, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, all of us, by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. It was that gospel that Abraham heard The gospel which apparently laid out the reality that salvation would come to the nations. It was that gospel promise which Abraham looked forward to. Here in Hebrews 11, that gospel promise is basically described in two ways. It's described in terms of place, verses 8 through 10, and then in terms of people, right, verses 11 and 12. Abraham looked forward to a place in the more immediate, the land of Canaan. But even there, the text tells us it was as if he were in a foreign land. Ultimately, the place he looked for was that heavenly city, the better country that has heavenly foundations. Secondly, the gospel promise was described in terms of people. Abraham was looking forward to a people. In the media, yes, it was a son, Isaac, and then a grandson, Jacob, 
And then through him, 12 great-grandchildren. And then through them, a multitude of descendants. But I think even there, Abraham knew that ultimately there was promised more. Not just a nation of descendants known as Jews who found their blood lineage back to Abraham. No, as Paul tells us in Romans 4 and verse 13, through faith, the promise to Abraham and his offspring was that he would become heir of the world. Or again, as we read this morning by Kevin, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. The gospel preached to Abraham, the promise which he looked forward to, was at once both a people and a place, a a dominion and a dynasty. And both of those promises found their fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. I've spent the past year reading and thinking through and even leading the Bible study through the book of Revelation. And I love how the book uh, ends. It's really the perfect ending to all scripture. It it ties all of these, these theological threads together into one beautiful knot, closing off God's word. And the book itself begins and ends in much the same way. And one of the themes that begins uh, begins and ends the book of Revelation is this concept of of the heavenly city. The city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. The city that Hebrews 13 says is still to come. In Revelation 3 verse 12, Jesus is writing to his church and and he says, To all the Christians who have enduring faith, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And I will write on him the name of my God. What is that name? Well, he says, it's the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out from my God of heaven. And it is my own new name. You see what Jesus is doing here? In Revelation, Jesus is beginning to tie those two sides of the gospel promise that Abraham looked forward to. And he's bringing them together. My people, says Jesus, all those who believe as Abraham believed, they will be called the new Jerusalem. And in fact, that's how Jesus ends the book of Revelation. In chapter 21, John looks up and he he sees this city, this new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. But then he says the city, well, it was really the bride of Jesus. And then a little later, the angel comes and he he says to the apostle John, come here, come here, I want to show you something. I want to show you the bride of Christ. I want to show you the wife of the lamb, all the people who believe. And the text says, he carried him away in the spirit to a great high mountain. And you know what he saw? He saw the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. The Bible closes with these two images of what God has promised to Abraham, these two images coming together. In Christ, we we become that city that has its foundations in heaven. We, we, we are the sons of Abraham, the faithful sons of God. And it is to Christ whom we all look by faith. Abraham's faith was a Christ-clinging faith, an enduring faith. And so too do we endure daily, walking in faithfulness. Now as sojourners, perhaps living in tents, but ultimately looking forward and enjoying the full coming of Christ. Let's pray.